0: approach something such as thinking about something or solving a problem so our brain has these heuristics for how we think about people you know you, you see a guy with a bloody knife running down the road and your brain is going to immediately think psycho killer get out of the way right you haven't got to know him you don't know if you know he's carving a stake but you get enough clues that you make to take the shortcut and you make this judgment call but sometimes these heuristics foul us up when we say you know this person who is a you know value investor that's their identity that's the label i have on them that's all there is to.
1: welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is our next installment of our Intellectual Humility mini-series with Shane Snow. Shane, what are we going to talk about this time?
0: All right. So I'm calling this one The Science of Second Chances Part 1, and what I want to talk about is why we as people are so inconsistent at giving people the chance to change and why why are we more willing to forgive some people than others why do we so often seek revenge instead of change and the reason i want to talk about this is first of all it sets us up to talk about us changing better which is what intellectual humility is all about but Never giving someone a second chance is highly risky if you think about it in terms of being able to tap into the people that can make you smarter, make your life better, help you grow your business. Never giving anyone a second chance uh, is risky because we all make mistakes and we all need to be allowed to grow. So you're missing out if if you give into this normal human tendency of not being so thoughtful about who you allow a second chance to. However, on the other side, it's also risky to trust people who keep making mistakes over and over again and won't change, right? A toxic person as part of your team is going to ruin the whole team, slow your business down. A toxic person in your life that you just keep forgiving over and over again and they keep doing the same thing is going to make your life worse, not better. So. Finding the balance of allowing people to change balanced with not being fooled by people who aren't going to change is part of how intellectual humility can come to bear in our teamwork and our relationships. So I want to talk about what's going on as we thoughtlessly decide who to trust, who not to trust, who to let change grow, give second chances and not, and how we can be a little bit more thoughtful about that so that we can gain more in our relationships and in our work.
1: I love it. Where do you want to start? Okay,
0: so let's start with with the paradox. So we celebrate some people's transformations. We love these stories. I, I think in the past, I talked about Danny Trejo, the actor, who, you know, he was a gang member. He looks like he's been beat up a lot, and he went to jail, and then he became an actor. He was in Spy Kids, and he owns a bunch of taco joints now, and he's generally beloved philanthropic, guy and we love the fact that he used to be a gang member and now he's this wonderful guy and so we celebrate stories like that people that go from bad to good or from untrustworthy to trustworthy or unskilled to skilled is probably what we're usually dealing with right the people in our lives who you know used to be a rookie and now they're great we celebrate the person who makes mistakes and reforms you know the the half of the new testament in the bible was written by the guy who used to persecute the christians and then became their chief missionary right Saul to Paul, like that's the the classic 2,000 year old story of this hero that we have who used to be the bad guy. So at
1: the same time, oh, go ahead. What about Despicable Me? I can't believe he left off the movie Despicable (laughs) Me on that list. I'm just, this need, you know, I need a shout out.
0: 100%. Yeah. So, you know, the supervillain whose only ambition is to, what, abduct the moon, Uh, hold the moon for ransom or something. Ends up adopting these three little girls and becoming the greatest, and yeah, and we have amusement park rides about this guy now, even though his stated goal was to like ruin people's lives. Yeah, we, oh, we love that
1: kind of story, grew and mega mind like these classic classic examples. You're pointing, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's uh, and yeah, I mean, even you know, think about Darth Vader, so many of these stories. We love the part when the bad guy becomes the good guy and saves the day. And so, why is it that we're so on board with that? Those are our hero stories. But when our teammate screws up at work, we decide we're never going to let them have uh, anything to do with our projects again. Or when someone says something wrong on the internet, God forbid, we decide to never let them out in public again, right? Or, you know, someone that's a friend of yours betrays you or does something wrong, and you decide that not only will you never speak to them again, but you're going to make all your friends unfriend them on Instagram why do we do that at the same time that we celebrate these stories of transformation I guess I'm curious what you think is up with this this dichotomy that that we, we see very visibly now as we you know we celebrate these stories in in the media you know on in movies and tv of transformation and yet in the social media we're busy tearing each other apart for things that we've done wrong I'm curious where you think this is, uh, this paradox comes from.
1: So I think part of it is there's, there's some folks that don't intend to change or don't think they have anything about themselves to change. And like you said, those people can be dangerous to keep exposing ourselves to working with, you know, right? I think that for me, I think part of it is ego in the sense of like, they made me look so bad and I don't want to risk that again they, they didn't respect me. Don't they know who I am? You know, and there's, I think there's a lot about personal image and and possibly insecurities that they exposed of like, now everybody thinks I don't have it together, because they made me look bad. And it, I, I think for me, sometimes it's been about self worry. I think also, it's just for me, it's just being a hypocrite of like, not not giving people the benefit of the doubt I wish I was receiving. And, the you know, like, I don't know, what do you think?
0: I, I really like what you're getting at there it's I mean it, it helps me to under or to articulate I think one of the key things that's going on with this this sort of thing I mean the ego thing is is dead on I think that a lot of times we don't like it when people in our identity groups change either when they screw up or when they decide that they're upgrading we don't like that we don't like when you know someone that's on my baseball team cheats we're gonna be more likely to Send them out on the street and say, "May they never play baseball again." Right? If it's someone on your team, because they're betraying your group, and that reflects badly on you. I, I think that's where I go when I hear what you're saying. You know, in part, it's uh, it's about this ego thing and your ego, your identity being tied up in your group membership, and this person making you look bad by association. And by the same token, this is, I think, also why we have a hard time with people changing their minds when they're in our core group. So say you have a, a group of friends, you're all really close, and yeah, it's kind of the classic middle school thing. We all hang out in the treehouse and we say no girls allowed, and then one of you is like, hey, I have a girlfriend now, and you're mad you hate them. And it's in part because they're betraying the group, they're leaving the group. And the thing that you said you stood for when, you know, you should be happy for your friend, you know, for getting a girlfriend in middle school, it's like quite an accomplishment, I think in seventh grade, at least for me, you know, it was a unattainable accomplishment. But we, we tend to have a hard time with that sort of thing. And I think it it actually comes back to the same ego thing. It makes us feel bad about ourselves or makes us think we look bad when someone who we associate with decides that they're going to get better or or does get better or outperforms us. Or, you know, I think what happens a lot of times is someone decides that they have changed their mind about something that you strongly believe in, and that threatens you because them changing their mind means that you're wrong. And you being wrong means that uh, you're stupid. And well, that can't be the case. So I'm going to reject them. And I'm not going to allow them to change. So I think a lot of this is caught up in this, this thing that we talked about in the last couple of episodes, too tight of a coupling between our ego and our intellect, someone making their own decisions or deciding they're going to change or move on or grow or whatever, change their minds should not have to do with us. It should have to do with them. And really it should just have to do with the subject matter. Like you are not your opinions. You are not your skills. You are you. And yet we treat those kinds of things like a threat. So I don't know. Does 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 that resonate with you?
1: Yeah, I also think too, to me, there's this lack of intellectual honesty when I when I subscribe to something and I want to claim that I know it's true when I actually only have faith that it's true. I only believe that it's true. Hey, Warren Buffett style investing is the best way to run an investment fund, not getting out and speculating. That's just gambling and, you know, right. And, and so, and so if I want to believe that, and I've got all these evidences in, in, in favor of it, but I'm not rock solid in my own belief there, then, you know, some, some speculative hedge fund doing really well. It's like a cheese grater on this, like box, this cardboard cutout version of myself, because Real life is opposing this thing that I've claimed is true, right? What's worse is if my value investor buddy becomes a speculator, right? And I'm like, how could you possibly regress that far, you know? Right? Yeah. And you know, talk, put in politics, religion. Yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a snowboarder, and now I've become a skier. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it shows up yeah. all over the place, right?
0: Yeah. Well, you're getting at something really important, which is uh, we decide that because a person is wrong in one area or change their mind about one area, that means that that's all they are, you know, and our brain creates these shortcuts. You know, we've talked a lot about heuristics in our different episodes. Heuristics are shortcuts for how we approach something, such as thinking about something or solving a problem. Our brain has these heuristics for how we think about people. You know, you you see a guy with a bloody knife running down the road, and your brain is going to immediately think, Psycho killer, get out of the way, right? You haven't got to know him. You don't know if, you know, he's carving a stake, but you get enough clues that you make the take the shortcut and you make this judgment call. But sometimes these heuristics, foul us up when we say, you know, this person who is a, you know, value investor, that's their identity. That's the label I have on them. That's all there is to them. And so therefore, I'm going to make a judgment call based on that in like a very black and white kind of way. And of course, that person is many more things than just their job and just their specific type of job and has many other identities at home and lots of things that they're drawing from. And, you know, I would dare say that it's probably silly to be dogmatic about the type of investor you are if your goal is to be a good investor. And so adding some nuance to that, you know, is an important, I dare.
1: Oh, yeah, go. Sorry. Can I, can I weigh in on it? Yeah, for for me, I feel like I mean, in that case, it may be a a point of mathematics, like one was either mathematically better or not, right. Mm -hmm. But the point is, to me more so the like, shouldn't we be encouraging each other to be like, just have radical integrity to what we actually think is right. And I think the problem is, sometimes if I'm questioning something, but wish I wasn't, when somebody Mm -hmm. else questions it so much that they change. Then all of a sudden my, like my facade of rock solid knowledge Mm -hmm. gets revealed as only faith. And that's, Mm -hmm. that feels threatening to me because I don't like, I don't like the unknown. I don't like considering that maybe I don't actually know if I should be doing this or not, you know? Yeah. And the like, it's, it's like their change becomes a source of discomfort for me where really like if, if they hold this genuinely different belief and I think that that's like that's them being responsible for making the best choices for their life and the others around them even if they're even if they're objectively wrong the idea of like is it my personal responsibility to choose for them in life or is it my or am i my responsibility like i guess and this is probably more of a philosophical approach but like this idea of like can we genuinely encourage people to be the best version of themselves And then have the respect for them to make their own mistakes, just like we'd like people to respect us to make our own mistakes, instead of trying to control them. And right. So to me, there's like a mix of a few things in there, especially when you add moral things like business partners who feel like so and so shouldn't get a discount, but someone else wants to butter them up and give them it and then that's not fair to everyone else and isn't that morally wrong and Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily black and white and I like to think about myself as a as a I, I credit myself as a high integrity deeply honest person but if my partner does this then how does that make all of us feel you know like there's all these things about identity and morality and revealing my insecurities I've been lying to myself about that gets wrapped up in it for me
0: oh yeah and you know, especially if integrity is important to you, if deciding that there's a better way means that in the past, you know, you're different than you are now, then you're no longer congruent now than you were before. And so you have to wrestle with this. And And we'll talk about this in the next episode a little bit more. You have to wrestle this with this uh, idea that it's acceptable to change, even if that means not being consistent. And that can be really, you know, uh, that can r- really screw up your head if you think about it too much, I think.
1: So a story right along with that, you probably know. But a famous doctor in Europe, I can't remember how to say his first name correctly, I think it's Ignaz Semmelweis, the guy who figured out germ, germ theory, okay? Mm-hmm. The Vienna Hospital was so bad that women were having streets, having their babies on the street and then coming into the hospital. The mortality rate was like, you know, three in 10 women who go, went there to have their baby died, right? Uh-huh. And this guy Semmelweis, he goes away for two weeks and comes back. And less women have been dying in the ward when he's gone. And he realizes he is the, he, in that science experiment, he is the only missing thing. And he comes up with this, he comes up with this hypothesis that somehow when he is teaching the medical students on these dead cadavers and then coming straight over to his patients to deliver babies, that he's somehow transferring something. That's what's killing these women. So he starts investigating this whole idea of germ theory and And starts this like crazy hand-washing thing. And all of a sudden, the women stopped dying, right? It took him almost an entire generation of doctors to get doctors to embrace hand-washing. Because it basically was saying, I killed all those patients before. Uh... To wash my hands going forward means that I somehow participated in unnecessary deaths of people I claimed I was helping and they just straight out wouldn't do it years and years and years
0: yeah and you know viscerally no one wants to admit that at the same time why why is it so hard to say but I didn't know so I am not to blame like that
1: look at what if my self-image what if my identity what if my value to the world what if I'm concerned that I maybe don't matter in the real world And my legal degree and being an expert and all these things I'm respected for is this proof, the band-aid over this like hole in my heart, right? And to do that means ripping off the band-aid, right? My supposed geniusness of being a doctor and this helper and all these things I've had these accolades for all these years and the social status, that potentially takes a hit and it comes down to taking care of me or taking care of the patients. And so the self-deception to lie to themselves about it you know what I mean? Like the I don't think it's I don't think that it's like people are going like oh I'm going to lie to everyone about this. I think they lie to themselves. Yes, in order to ignore it. Right. Right. Yeah. And the self deception is the self deception is really attractive when you think about the apparent cost. It feels expensive to own mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. It can feel real expensive. I don't know. That's it. Mind yeah.
0: I'm I'm wondering. So if we're thinking about this from the point of view of a a leader in a business, I think a key question is how do you reduce the cost of owning up to mistakes? How do you reduce the cost of transforming and therefore having been wrong, but now being right? And I wonder, you know, with the, this doctor who, you know, discovered germ theory, uh, I want, do you know more of the story of what ended up? Was it just the old doctors had to die and the new doctors, you know, the new generation washed their hands? Or was there anything that worked for him to reduce the cost, like the the incentive to engage in self-deception?
1: You know, I'm not as familiar with that part of the story, but it sounds like it's worth investigating.
0: Yeah, that that's
1: some homework for me. I'm really curious about that. I, I do think about this in business, though, especially in bureaucracies, like larger organizations. Actually, I think it's the small ones, too if the if the people like I feel like the people at the top, they're, they're like radical self honesty, level of integrity, level of personal responsibility is like the glass ceiling for the people below them. It is so rare to see mm-hmm. employees or team members take more personal responsibility than their boss, in my experience. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, and what if it's big, like the CEOs, like, I should not have bought that $5 billion company. This was a mistake. That's, huge right huge Huge. and and the funny thing is like in most cases everybody else already knows that Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we can (laughs) lie to ourselves that not everybody else realizes what we've come to realize you know yeah yeah and i look at these people that i look up to with intellectual humility and and this like willingness to do what's right no matter what and let the consequences follow it's such an admirable admirable i can't say that word apparently admirable trait and and yet you can take a short term hit. It feels expensive. It's mm-hmm. why do we get tempted to lie to get out of short term pain? Yeah. In many ways, this is lying to ourselves to avoid short term pain. And potentially medium or possibly long term pain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, the incentive structures inside, I think the bigger the organization, the the more entrenched incentive structures become. If the incentive is to be right and never wrong, you know, if you're wrong, you get lower on the totem pole. If you're right, you climb. Then people will do whatever they can, including lying to themselves, to, to you know, to climb. It's like, I, I think I brought up the wire before in one of our conversations. Shocking how how interesting and nuanced of a view of the way that police departments work that was, like, what, 20 years ago? you know, there's like, cops aren't all good or all bad. And, you know, there's, uh, there's all sorts of different, you know, things at play there. But one of the things that that was shocking about that show to me is how, how much concern, like three quarters of the of the characters within this police department in the show, were more concerned about their numbers of cases they've cleared than actually helping people, you know, and, and one fourth cared more about helping people and and some of them kind of converted to the the better side, but just hearing people talk about how, well, we can't investigate that murder because then our rate will go down. That's about your own you know, you're lying to yourself that, what, this person and their family and whoever wants to know what happened to them don't matter.
1: As much as like, my career.
0: Right, and you have to do some mental gymnastics to make that make sense and still feel good about yourself, which most people are not psychopaths, so we, we do whatever we can to feel good about ourselves, but that means the layers of self-deception go really deep and twisty.
1: Yeah, it's just where amazing rationalization machines Mm -hmm. you know what i mean our ability to justify almost anything is incredible you just you see those studies where it's like the they they take this paper give it to a hardcore republican and say that their candidate wrote it and Mm he will argue all the reasons it's so good give the same paper to the democrat tell them what their candidate wrote it they'll tell all the reasons and defend it And, you know, like or, or like they'll 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 take the candidates and they'll switch the names on it and hand them out and people will defend the policies. Right. <laughs> and it, it is so interesting, this this idea of like commitment to results, commitment to honesty mm. over self-preservation. You know, th- this like this selfless service, the servant leader, the the person willing to do what's right at great personal cost. We admire those people so much and we're inspired by them because we are so heavily tempted and often incentivized not to be that person. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you're in the culture and the people above you have done no wrong, there's very little incentive to, to show your soft underbelly. You right. know what I mean? Cuz right. you if you've seen other people become the scapegoat for, you know, the boss that should have known better than letting you do that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. There's there's not a big incentive. It's Look at, you know, everybody talks about culture and culture and businesses. It's such like a useless buzzword. It's almost like innovation, right? Like mm-hmm, right. <laughs> anything new is now innovation, right? Right. <laughs> um, and to me, like my, my definition of culture in an organization or company has more to do with like, well, how much can I gossip about my coworkers and keep my job here? How many times can I be late and how late can I be and keep my job? How much mm. swearing can we do here and keep my job? How, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, how much personal responsibility can I skip and keep my job around here? Right. Yeah. And you look at the bosses, you look at the people above and you go, what do what do they do? And what do I see that they reward and punish? And we all learn the game of getting promoted. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so this
0: as I've dug through this topic and, you know, it, it's it's such a it's like one of those tangled knots of, you know, of string. But as I've dug through it, the, the biggest insight that I've had that, that gets at what you're talking about with the, the kinds of leaders that we aspire to be, that we lionize, that there are way too few of, the ones who are willing to admit their mistakes, who are going to be great to people no matter what, and you know not stab people in the back. The, the insight that I had, I guess the aha to me, has to do with the psychological factors of trust, which I believe we talked about before, but uh, for anyone that, that didn't hear that one, basically, when you break down why someone trusts another person, there are three things uh, that if you do them consistently, someone will trust you. There's no way you can't trust someone who does these three things. They are showing competence. You're good at what you say you can do or what you need to, to do. There's integrity. You're going to do what you say you do and not you know, do something else when people aren't looking. And there's benevolence, which means you're going to treat people like they're humans and like you care about them. And we don't like giving people second chances when benevolence has been breached. We don't like...
1: What's an example?
0: So if, if your coworker files a report late and they screwed up, you might give them a second chance if you know that they tried really hard and they care and they want the team to succeed and they just made an honest mistake. However, if the, your coworker did not file the report because they wanted to make you look bad so that they could get promoted, you're never going to trust them again. I think the, the CEO who says, hey, I screwed up because they want the team to know the truth because they care about them knowing the truth and they want them to be informed, even if that's uncomfortable, is a CEO who is showing benevolence, who's showing kindness and thought to their team, even though it's difficult news. Uh, versus a CEO that will hide things and people start to wonder if they're telling the truth or not. And if they're telling the truth or not, you know, we can write the story in our head that they're not telling the truth because they are out for themselves, uh, you know, and not us. Or we can write the story that, hey, they're not telling the truth because they're trying to, you know, not scare us. Either way, that's uh, that's the kind of leader that's going to have problems. And so I I think this gets at why, you know, they allowing people to change things. If people screw up or they play games or they do a bad job or whatever, uh, if they've done so without hurting other people or without meaning to hurt other people, I think there's more tolerance that we have for allowing things to change. Or if they prove later that they care about other people. So I, I think about this, you know, in particular, we can go back to the Danny Trejo example. So a random person who's been in prison, uh, been in you know, a violent gang who moves in next door to your house might scare you because you don't know anything about them other than that thing that like, hey, they hurt people. That's not very benevolent. I don't, I don't want to trust someone who hurt people. But if you get to know this person and you realize that they have a children's charity and they you know have done all these things to help people, then you realize, oh, they're benevolent now. I could trust them. You know I'd let Danny Trejo babysit my kid if I had a kid. But I wouldn't let someone who hasn't proven that benevolence thing, you know, he doesn't have to be good at parenting to, you know, someone who you let babysit your kid doesn't have to be great at that job, as long as they're not going to, you know, kill your kid. Uh, if you know that they care, they don't have to be great at like knowing how where the cereal is or not to feed the kid sugar at midnight or whatever. you will still be okay versus someone who you let watch your kid who you're pretty sure could care less if your kid died. So that's where I think all of this stuff kind of comes together when we're talking about how we treat people and whether we allow people to to change or to be forgiven. It it boils down much more to this idea of benevolence and being kind and caring about people than it does about proving how good you are at, you know, playing a game or whatever it is. I don't know if I quite articulated that that well, but that's where where I see, you know, high profile examples of people who have done something really bad and the world kind of lets them come back. I think about, you know, in in politics, things get dicey because there's identity group stuff too. But I think about someone like Bill Clinton, who did something very bad and lied about it. You know, there were, were a lot of lapses there, but the lapses were of integrity. And people, the people who, you know, the large percentage of Americans who decided that they still would support him did so because they thought that he was still a good guy. Okay, so he lied. So he cheated on his wife. So he was doing things with his personal life, sneaking around when he should have been running the country. But he cares about people. So, OK, we'll allow him a second chance. Now, you know, strip away your own, anyone who's listening, strip away your own politics there for a second. Just think about the kind of leader that does that. If you do believe that they're a nice person and that they want to help people, you're going to be more willing to give them that second chance than if, say, the president of the United States stabbed someone you know, and decided they really wanted to hurt people or really didn't care about a group of people. It's a lot harder to come back from that. So, it's sort of maybe a weird example: president having an affair versus a president stabbing someone. But those are the kinds of things that subconsciously I think are going on for us when we decide, well, should I give someone a second chance? And I, I'm convinced that the thing with celebrities, whether we're talking about you know an actor or a president or anyone, celebrities get more chances in front of us to show us that they're nice people, that they've changed, that like, oh, you know, I'm out of rehab, and look at me doing charity stuff, or you know, I said that bad thing on stage of the comedy thing. Here's me apologizing. Here's me doing things to show that I'm kind now. Whereas I think a lot of times in real life, someone does something awful and you say, never again will I deal with you. And they just don't get that second shot in front of you. However, if they're an actor, they show up on TV on The Tonight Show and you can maybe get to judge them again. So I think that's something that's interesting that, you know, fool me 10 times, shame on me. But a lot of times in our our lives, we don't give people a a second chance to prove whether they will be benevolent and have changed because of what they've done or if they are permanently this
1: one thing that they've done. You know, I have this theory. Maybe you can help me write a book next year after you finish this one. I have this theory that so many of the things in sales, in investment, in psychology, in uh, leadership, in most interactions between humans and in our identities about ourselves tie back to survival in some way. Mm, mm-hmm. And that essentially, like, you know, as you're talking, like the other word that comes to mind there is selfishness. Like mm-hmm. this idea of somebody who makes a lapse out of selfishness and is unable to, because we have all done that, right? But if they're unable to then to then show enough others' focus later to overcome mm-hmm. that that presumption of selfishness, They're not safe from a survival standpoint, you know. Mm. Like these leaders that I look at, that like they they take it, and they might even lose their job over their honesty and whatever. But they're willing to do what's right for everyone else at potentially a large cost to themselves. You know, on on Monday I interviewed uh, Walt Rakowicz. He's was the CEO of Prologis. They're like the third largest real estate company in the world, Mm -hmm. and like 2008 he's just in the biggest fight he's the cfo he's in the biggest fight with the ceo because the ceo is trying to grow no matter what and he's overpaying for stuff and he wants to buy this company for like 750 million and he and everybody else is like it's only worth 500 and he's like you know i expect you to support me on this on the board i don't care how you feel about it and he's just like ah i'm probably going to lose my job over this but i i just i just can't that i just wouldn't be me if i did so he ends up telling the board he doesn't support it, and the two of them end up basically with irre- 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 irreconcilable differences. I can't talk today, <laughs> and uh, and he basically, you know, like it's just obvious this isn't going to work. So he he basically mm-hmm. backs out. Well, in the ten months from that, you know, him having that rift and backing out over the next ten months, the company goes from a twenty-two billion dollar market cap, approximately. To five hundred million dollars, so they they lose like ninety something plus percentage of wow uh, their stock price drops by like ninety something percent. Anyways, crazy, right? So that's, at that's some point, right, they're like the third worst performing stock in the entire S P five hundred in the middle of the two thousand eight meltdown, right? And and because of his like willingness to experience personal pain to do what was right. everyone else that board called him back and said will you become we just fired that guy you know we fired that guy will you come back and be the ceo you know and he had this incredibly tough time but over the next four years he grew the market cap back up past the 20 billion and did this big merger and and so his reign as ceo went from uh 500 million dollar market cap to 50 billion dollar market cap it was like 100x in four years you know (laughs) Um, uh-huh. What's funny is this new book he's got coming out September 29th here called Transfluence, about transformative influence. It's like full of do the right thing even when it's hard and, and oh, so take glad. a look in the mirror. That... And and like, you know, he, he and, and what's fascinating is he tells on himself of times when he didn't want to, you know. So it's like for me, it was like so inspiring. I like he hadn't even come on the show yet. I finished the book. I wrote him this like gushy email about how much uh-huh. the book meant to me, you know. That's but amazing. it's like, that's who I hope to end up like someday,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. So here's a question. This guy who nearly took the company into the ground, who, you know, the the new CEO who's back, doesn't want to work with again. When things like that happen to us, we have this tendency to say nothing that this person has done or will do is worth Any value. And yet, I would be surprised if someone like who you're describing would retake over the company and say, you know what, we're going to purge everything that this old guy ever did, we're going to strike his name from the record. None of the things that have been, you know, we're going to get rid of the snacks because he was the one that implemented the snacks. Um, there, and yet there's this, it's so hard when someone has clearly screwed up, clearly done wrong, you know, been a jerk to you. Like, it it sounds like this was not a, you know, a nice falling out. And yet at the same time, part of what intellectual humility is about is recognizing that even that person has things that can be valuable. You don't have to work with them. You don't have to, you know, make them part of your life anymore. You don't have to send them a Christmas card, but you can also recognize that they have, they have, there are things that you can learn from them. And this, I think, is one of the hardest things. It's it's one of the things that makes giving people second chances easier, knowing that, you know, you can learn from anyone. But I think it's one of the hardest things as leaders to do. And I mean, in relationships, too, when we're trying to judge kind of what we do about people who have, you know, have made mistakes or what we do about people who... Say are bad people, but who have come up with a good idea you know there's this kind of classic curious how you think about this and this is kind of the the final thing that i I wanted to to get to before we wrap up this this particular set and and then move on to our own ability to change. But, uh, you know, what do you do about the great work of art that you find out that the artist was a pedophile? Or what do you do about, you know, the you know the jet engine that you're now using, you know, for your brand new plane and you find out that the guy who invented it, who's getting the royalties for it, you know, was a Satanist who, you know, sacrificed real humans. You know, what do you do? I mean, those are extreme examples. But what do you do about that when when someone is really bad or someone you just don't want to associate with and you want to cut them out of your life and yet there's something that they've done that is, is useful or beautiful or whatever, that I think is really hard for us to deal with. I'm, I'm curious what your calculus is for you know, there's, there's more extreme versions of this and less extreme versions of this. The person you don't like who has a good idea and you you can grumble but you know, you may as well consider their idea versus the person who's an awful person who creates a piece of art. Do you have to pay attention to it? I'm, I'm curious your calculus for that sort of thing because I think it ties into all
1: this. You know, I'm going to go back to survival, right? I think that I think I think that there's like what I might be tempted to do versus what I think the right thing to do is, right? And like for instance, um at, at a marketing company, right? I I might recognize that the Nazis were in and and the, you know, Stalin who arguably murdered more people, right? were incredibly effective at swaying human opinion, the way they approached propaganda. And that there's actually, like, ways that those same principles could be used for good, right? Mm-hmm. However, um, proposing this to the group of, like, what we can learn from Stalin and Hitler, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. No matter how true the subject is, because of the visceral emotional ex- response and that being associated with, like, having anything associated with that, it's like the the logical part of the brain gets kicked off lot. You know, quick brain mm-hmm. science, the, the traffic cup of the brain, the thalamus, when it sees a threat. It can stop thoughts from going to the most advanced part of our brain, the neocortex, the logic lawyer part of our brain, right? It just like elbows his traffic buddy, the amygdala, and pulls the fire alarm and dumps adrenaline and cortisol into the bloodstream, right? But, and, you know, we stop the digestive tract and muscles like the biceps and quads starts even a bunch of blood for fight or flight. Well, if all that's happening and they're not listening to what the Nazis were actually smart about and just using it for evil, it actually didn't do you any good to talk about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so so we had a I'm not gonna go on another tangent. That's my point. Yeah.
0: I think that's a great point, that it's, uh, it's counterproductive it, knowing, you know, that people are going to react to something like that. It's counterproductive to use that. And so, I mean, this actually, I think, is where, you know, in one's personal thinking process, saying, you know what, I'm going to go down the road and see what I can learn from this thing. And then when you learn it, understanding the underlying principles and why they're true, and then rebuilding that. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talked about in our lateral thinking series is kind of about this. You could say, you know, I'm going to study all of these problems propagandists in history from Hitler to Stalin to there's tons of other ones and where they learned their tricks and who learned from them and I'm going to understand the human nature behind how you know messaging and communication and marketing and persuasion works and then I will build on that. And I'm not going to give Hitler the credit. I, I think that's a but if you if you were to stop yourself and say, well, Hitler used advertising, so I'm not going to use advertising, you know, or this bad person is a public speaker, so I can't be a public speaker, that would be, you know, ludicrous. But you gotta separate those things and when it's kind of the opposite of, you know, appropriation where you're 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 making money off of someone else's work or culture without crediting them versus, you know, you should credit them when, you know, when that's the case. I think learning from people, no matter who they are, don't credit them if it's gonna be problematic. Don't but but don't cut yourself off from exploring. So the, the free economics guys talk about this about in one's own safe environment of thinking, suspend your morality strategically once in a while, so that you can learn something and then re implement your morality. So you can decide what your judgment is on. It. And I think that's, a, that's a pretty good, you know, most people uh, are not gonna just decide that they're going to be an immoral, bad person, because they've thought about something, but take your hat off for a second, and then put it back on to be the filter. I think that's a really interesting thinking process.
1: So to to endorse your point there, one of my heroes, your your friend Ryan Holiday, you know, in my favorite of his books, The Obstacle is the Way, he's got a chapter about what Rommel, you know, a, <laughs> a Nazi, what he did that was highly effective in the ways that he charged ahead with boldness in ways that everybody else was afraid to. And he like, he created his own openings. And it's like an objective, it's like an objective observation of an effective technique without an endorsement of personal beliefs, you know? And and I think he straddles that really well. I, I remember being in Nigeria with this 25-year Navy SEAL guy. We we were with SOCOM. We were teaching this class for, like, hey, we were with all these American special ops guys. We were like, here's the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. Here's the mistakes we made in Iraq. Hopefully, you guys don't have to make these same mistakes with Boko Haram, right? And we're sitting at the hotel, and he's telling me all these great things he's learned from Genghis Khan. Yeah. <laughs> and, you're like, and he's like, we were had enough of a friendship. He's like, Hey, set aside, you know, set aside the atrocities, set aside the things that we can't endorse about him. And look at like, look at all these highly unifying things where he didn't crush people and he let them have their autonomy. And he, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like anyways, so yeah. Just I mean, it, it goes
0: back to this. Don't lump people, you know, you be strategic about what you say, if you're trying to persuade people and, you know, and, and get them on, on board with what you're doing. And psychological safety counts for a lot if you want to talk about things that are nuanced, but don't treat people like they're one thing. Don't you know, don't assign one label characteristic or judgment to every aspect of every person. And then it'll I think it will go a long way. So the the last story, mini story that I'll say that I always think about when I think about this topic. Is how at my old company, Contently, one of our clients asked us if we could do a criminal background check on every employee at the company. So it's like, you know, 130 people do a criminal background check on all of them. And, you know, some of the executives were like, Yeah, we we gotta do this because, you know, we wanna make our, you know, our customer happy. And one of our top leaders said no, because I trust everyone who's here. I know that everyone who's here here and now is good and honest and in my terms benevolent. You know, we have a team that is great and as someone who has a criminal background himself, I don't want to have this criminal background check done to the rest of our employees. And none of us had any idea that this, you know, executive had been in jail or whatever we do, you know, still don't know. And and it's like looking at this person who we trust, who is so good and so caring and such a good leader, and recognizing that something there's something in his past that if we were to judge him based on that for the rest of his life, would actually cost us a lot as a team and not wanting to do that to these, you know, the rest of our employees. And that, you know, it might be different if you're, you know, working at a bank and you're screening a new person coming in, you'd want to know if they've robbed a bank before. That might be a different situation. But because we had already determined through, you know, time and consistency that the people we had were honest and good, it was an unnecessary thing for us to, to do that could actually create some biases about who people are who had genuinely changed and we knew that. So I always think about that. But if everyone knew every mistake that I had ever made and judged me purely based on that, that's every facet of me. You know, I'm not talking about someone that, that history has judged You know, completely like like Hitler, like, you know, he did enough bad things so consistently that we should not, you know, hire him to work at our bank, you know, or, you know, respect him at all. But, you know, in the more day to day things when we're dealing with normal people who are not psychopaths there's a lot to learn, I think, from that idea that who you are now should be how we judge someone's character and their trustworthiness, not who they used to be.
1: It's, uh, there's so many complexities, right? Because, you know, I look at, you know, at our charity, child trafficking, we really want these guys who were involved in, in trafficking or pimping, we want them to be able to get a job doing something else so that they don't go back to the easy money, right? Mm -hmm. And, and yet, we want society to be safe and have them at places with safe. Right. Oh yeah. And, 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 you know, I look at other things. We, we just went and shot these videos, child rescue supporting this, this great charity called uh, America's kids belong. And they like, they get permission from the state and they shoot basically a profile video of a kid in foster care who can never go back to their parents. You know, they're the most at risk kids of getting trafficked. So they shoot a video of these kids to basically almost act as like a marketing thing to help them get adopted. And, Kids who have not been getting adopted for 10 years, all of a sudden, like, will get adopted in 30 days or, you know, 50% of them with the first year, almost 100% within two years that haven't aged out. I mean, it's incredible statistics for a $1,000 video, right? And they had all of us get a background check to come. And that's tough. You're like your donors. These people are like giving you the money. And we actually had more respect for them that they like, you know, they're to be a bit apologetic about it. But it was like, you know, if you want to come, we, we need to get this, you know, mm-hmm. and I, we you know, in that case, there could be so many temptations not to ask for it because you want the money. Yeah, right? yeah. Or I worked at Black and Decker in Southern California early on in my sales career. And I remember this kid who worked a couple cubicles over one day wasn't there. And we're like, hey, what happened to him? and it's like so he'd like basically done like a stolen identity thing and applied under like a false social security number and wow. stuff to get this job to avoid his criminal record being shown and and it ended up coming up coming out later <laughs> and I yeah i think like the way that it came out he'd actually filled in the information that f- led to him being found out <laughs> <And I'm pretty laughs> like, where did you think this was going to go pal <laughs> you know? yeah um, but well, somebody I- who's like actively you know so they're like for me there's not these hard and fast rules there's these like there's these complexities and what principles can we apply in the situation and to the point that i got so excited to have this whole uh, mini series with you is i personally believe the more intellectual humility that i can work on on myself that's going to help me make better choices at those judgment calls yes yeah so i was hoping for you to fix me so (laughs) well i i mean what you're saying i mean it's teaching
0: me so much that like even as i talk about these principles recognizing that everything is about handling situations by situation they are saying that like never should anyone do background checks is also dogmatic right you know in the case for us there was nothing that a background check could reveal that at our media tech startup would have possibly changed our mind about someone who we already who we knew presently was good However, absolutely, if you're, you know, you're in a, a, a different kind of situation, you'd want to judge that. I, I would say, even you know, in the in this specific case, so you do the background checks for all these folks that are going to be part of the, you know, the 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 charity, and you find out that someone doesn't clear the background check. Actually, having the audacity to look into what it was and decide, oh, this person you know got busted for pot when they were eighteen they're okay versus something that, you know, is going to be more germane to the situation. But so often we don't do that, right? We don't, we don't take the time that it takes to, you know, to question our assumptions, to question our past thinking. And, and that's what I think, you know, intellectual humility ultimately is about is taking more time to try to get to what you said before, the right things, no matter what it costs us.
1: I love it. Well, let's wind up there. Everybody, please tune back into the next installment of our intellectual humility series with Shane Snow. Thanks, everyone.